Welcome to L&D Disrupt, the podcast dedicated to helping you overcome workplace challenges and prepare for the future of work today. I'm your host, Nelson Sivlingen, and I'll be speaking with the movers, shakers, and pathbreakers in L&D who are reshaping their organizations right now. Join us each week as we delve into the highs and lows of work in the industry to get to the real nitty-gritty stuff that you actually care about. A phrase that I always hear getting thrown around in the L&D space is putting the learner first. But I often wonder how many people proactively design a strategy to meet the employee's needs. Today, we're joined by someone who's super passionate about designing learning experiences that are intentionally built with the learner in mind. Sarah Stevenson, Vice President, Learning and Employee Experience at Schleisinger Group, is on the show to chat about how design thinking has impacted her work for the better, how you can use the principles to create some real change. Without further ado, here's Sarah. Sarah, welcome to the show. Hey, Nelson. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Um, I'm super excited because we're going to kind of dive in and really dissect and break down um, really how we can use design thinking in in L&D. But before we kind of dive in there, I wanted to kind of backtrack. When did you first come across design thinking? It's it's one of those terms that seems like it's been around forever, but when did you kind of first really come across it? Well, it comes out of a practice. I mean, we can go into like art history here and go into the Bauhaus and all of that, but it really evolves out of a space that was called human-centered design, right? Um, That really emerged in the late 60s and to the 70s, which really evolved things like ergonomics, right? Like your OXO, um, you know, potato peeler, human-centered design, right? So um, it didn't take too long for software developers really to adopt some of these, you know, design practices into user experience, um, you know, user interface practices. So I think it kind of design thinking as we see it today really formally came out of that software development process. I have a very, you know, aligned story to that as in, you know, back in years and years and years ago, started in interface design with some software developers who were, you know, designing things with comic sans and big red buttons <laughs> because that's what you could do. Um, so I have I have a very personal story that evolves with design thinking. But yeah, I think that that practice is human-centered design is probably where we first encountered it and where I first encountered it. And I guess for you, at what moment did you start thinking, actually, you could use design thinking in L&D? How did that come about? Yeah, ironically, it was teaching developers design thinking. Oh, wow. You know? (laughs) I was like, oh, well, I'm already kind of doing this. Like, (laughs) This is like putting words to a practice that I'm already doing because... I think that, you know, I came, you know, I came out of a strict Addy principle and taught Addy for years, essentially. And then when Sam's came on the on the scene um, with Allen Interactions, I was working with Allen Interactions as a they were, you know, consultants for me at the time and saw that kind of evolving into the space. And I, and it was hard. I mean, Sam's it is what design thinking is kind of too, right? Um, it's sort of like a rapid, rapid prototyping model for learning, but it never caught on, I think, just because people didn't 
get the words and the practice of it. But, you know, design thinking, I think, is what we have evolved a lot of Addy principles into over the past 10 years with, you know, meeting the needs of business. And just for our listeners who might not be familiar with the term, so what what is, I guess, the core difference between Addy and SANS as an approach goes? Yeah, I think so. Addy has essentially a, a longer development model. So you're going through steps very consecutively and then at the end, evaluating it. And both with SAMS as well as design thinking, you're kind of getting to a, a minimal viable product listening to feedback and iterating, right? So it's a more iterative model um, in, a, in a much shorter development cycle as well. And, and I guess just from what you've said there, Sarah, one of the aspects for why you might shift is, is quite obvious, the fact that you're realizing whether something works or not quite later on down the line with, with Addy because you go through all the steps and then, you know, months later, you might find out when you evaluate it actually made no difference or no one really engaged versus with a more kind of MVP iterative approach, you're finding out a lot earlier. Were there anything else, any other challenges you were facing with Addy that made you kind of more open to newer ways of doing things? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, in the instructional design space, I think if you put together like 20 instructional designers in a room, the first, they were like, what's your biggest problem? And they'd be like, sneeze, (laughs) right? Like getting feedback from subject matter experts, right? So you have one person that you're assigned as your subject matter expert, right? Mm -hmm. Um, you're waiting and they have a whole job that has nothing to do with your job, right? They're just, they're, right? You're, you're, you're in many ways an impediment on their getting work done. And so in strict Addy, you know, you're, you're doing your analysis, you're doing your design, and then you're getting SMEED feedback and you're getting SMEED feedback at every part of the step. Well, you know, that's, if you only have one subject matter expert, your process is is shifting incredibly, right? Um, so from the L and D space, I think that you know crowdsourcing, like I crowdsource now, right? Right. So I go to the learners as my experts, right? Like, what problems am I solving for them? Not the one subject matter expert that I might have in the process. So, um, you know, I have to say I rely more on documentation and uh, reading through process manuals and reading through um, workflows uh, from for that subject matter expertise right, more right. than I rely on the subject matter expert at this point sometimes. And, and so, how did you start applying design thinking? to the way you were developing your L&D strategy and, and, and concepts, et cetera. How were you going about that? Yeah, I'm, in a, I'm at a new organization as of July, and they are really through, going through a huge evolution. And, and I think that this has been a great incubator to really right. try things, right? Uh, they're hungry for trying new things and new innovations. Uh, previous to this, I think that I've done it in a far more quiet way, right? I think I've been doing this for eight or 10 years and saying it's, I think, for a long time. And pe- people who know me have heard this. I don't really believe in Addy. I believe in Ad E, like where the E wraps around to the A. Yeah. Um, and 
I think that, you know, I've been doing it for a long time, but in the current state where I am and really driving things strategically, I don't have time to measure things in nine months. I need to measure things in five and six week sprints. Right. And Addy doesn't make that possible. So design thinking methodology and that iterative methodology, and again, starting with that crowdsourcing, like what are what are the problems that we really need to solve? Is it a learning problem? Is it a communication problem? Right. Is it a process problem? Is it a software problem? And being consultative right there at the beginning, I think lends to the space that I'm in. I think the space that we're all trying to solve business problems right now. Right. And that kind of crowdsourcing part, Sarah, is that having a lot of chats and a lot of coffees with people? Is that sending out survey? How does that actually look? All of those. So I I started with what I call the listening tour. So really going to all of the senior executives and then going, starting at the top layer of the organization and then going to the the bottom layer of the organization and really talking to people everywhere across the organization to see what they needed. Um, so yeah, listening tours and then listening systems like pulse surveys and um, exit surveys are extremely right. important. If you if your organization's not doing an exit survey, you're really missing out on the most yeah. honest feedback you could possibly <laughs> You could possibly get, right? Um, And 90-day onboarding surveys are great too when people are still in the honeymoon period and they give you great feedback and make you feel like you're really knocking it out of the park (laughs) and what you should keep doing better, right? Um, So lots of pull surveys, but I think that, you know, that crowdsourcing piece is also looking at personas, like looking at personas within each different part of your organization where you might be having learning problems right? right and really in that you know design thinking model number one is empathy right number one empathy right so really trying to get to the people you know did a great survey this is this is i just brought a group to savannah a few weeks ago and did a whole learner persona survey and found out that the one role in the organization everybody had a dog right. <laughs> You know, nobody knew that, right? But, you know, asked about their family and what their home looks like. And this one role, everybody had a dog. So, you know, when we created the persona, it wasn't just the persona of the person. It was the persona of um, the woman and her dog, Biscuit. They named the dog before the person by the way, too. So, <laughs> Crowdsources, I, I love the idea, by the way, of, of listening tours. Like, you know, Sarah's on a listening tour. Uh, and and I, I, I amazing. Um you crowdsource your ideas, um, you've kind of identified through that process of, of kind of problems um, and let's say business problems for the time being. What happens with that information afterwards? Yeah, that's great. So I go through, a, you know, a process that, you know, often we do like a rosebud thorn exercise, right? So like, what are we doing? Well, where do we have to improve and what should we basically scrap, right? Uh, or what's getting in our way of getting to the, you know, the, the good and the opportunity. Um, and, you know, that process within a group, I think, is really effective to then say, okay, well, this is really not a learning problem, right? Like, this is an opportunity to grow the organization, uh, but really fundamentally, it's a leadership problem. Right, right. right. 
Um, and then say, okay, well, it sounds like this is a communication problem between this group and this group. Um, right. So when we get down to it, we're like, okay, we've boiled this all down and looked at this as a process and say, okay, well, these are the learning choices we need to make to right. create opportunity for the organization. Um, so I think that, again, in that design thinking model, we have a very unique way of being able to say, okay, we understand what's going on organizationally and we see the business problems that we keep encountering. And it's really easy for a lot of people to say, oh, it's a learning problem. Like we hear, we hear that. Yeah. Right. Like, oh, train people on this. Right. And that will magic. Like I have some magic wand, (laughs) you know, Oh, we've solved the learning problem. Right? No, it, that's not how it works. So, you know, I think that there are lots of different processes and methodologies that align with, um, you know, design thinking. There's a great program at Luma Institute where they, you know, have like a, a card brought my my cards for the the YouTube viewers here. But um, you know, it's called innovating for people, but it's a card sort where you can be like, okay, let's try this exercise and this exercise and this exercise. And if we put these things together, then we'll probably get to a point where we understand where we need to go. And and who's involved in that discussion, Sarah? Like who else do you yeah. bring in when you're discussing is this a leadership problem, communication problem, learning problem? Who's involved in that? That's a great question, Nelson. I mean, as many people as I can get involved, frankly, right? So stakeholders are important, whether they're part of that that broader conversation or in that listening phase. Um, The director, VP director level, the people who are, you know, strategically moving the needle in the organization are important to get involved in that conversation because they have... Um, frankly, different things that they're aiming for, right? Than maybe the learners themselves. Um, the bringing the learner into the conversation, if nothing else, through you know modeling and um, creating personas, bringing them into that conversation, so you can point to the persona on the wall and say, "Well, how would Natalie solve this problem?" Yeah. Um, but it's also bringing in your learning consultants, right? I think that we as learning consultants have a really important role within organizations to help solve business problems. Yeah. And and what does the format of one of those sessions look like, Sarah? Is it like you're up on the whiteboard sticking post-its and getting everyone involved? Or is it kind of presenting back the data you've gathered from the crowdsourcing? What does it typically look like? It can be both. I mean, I've I've gone through and walked, you know, I, I do a number of consulting, some consulting work, and I've gone through virtually this process too with something like a Miro board or a Tableau board um, where you're asking questions, trying to get as much information from the people in the room and the subject matter experts. Um, and, and then, yeah, presenting out sometimes the data that might surprise them, right. The, the pre, the pre-work of those sessions, right. um, which is always, uh, rather, it's usually rather enlightening to present back people, you know, the people that they work with every day in yeah. an anonymized way, <laughs> giving their feedback. Um, you've kind of landed on the fact that it's a learning problem and now you're trying to solutionize and you'd mentioned earlier around more of an MVP approach. So what does that look like? How do you go from we've defined our problem to the MVP? How do you get to that point? 
Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I had on my, my thing, my notes to chat with you about is I think that, yes, we might not be formally saying design thinking, right. But I think that our development products, like our rapid development tools have matched well with creating things in that MVP process. So we look at tools like um, Articulate Rise, which is, you know, I can show you how to use Articulate Rise in about an hour, you know, top to bottom and have you, I'm not saying that you're going to be a great content developer, (laughs) but you can certainly put your content into a format that's mobile and palatable and easily, you know, sent out into the world and distributed into the world. So I think that, you know, when we look at the rapid development model or the MVP model, we're looking to get to the goals, right? So in a traditional model, we're saying, okay, well, tell me what, you know, the consultation is not, hey, what business problem are we solving? Hey, what are the learner's needs? Traditionally, it's what are your three objectives, Yeah. right? Um, so I think that rapid development looks a lot different and it's not absent the three objectives to be completely clear. I think that that still is a, a viable way to get to the, the, from the start to the finish. But I think that that rapid development model is taking the content, taking the surveys, taking the data that you have, and as a designer, making really serious choices as to how to simplify a process, make it as easily understood as possible, and getting it out the door quickly to then get reactions. Right. So go back to your learners, go back to your business, your business case that you're trying to solve, go back to your um, stakeholders that are invested in getting this solved and ask ask the questions. Is this is this solving the problem? Yeah, and I know when I've spoken to L&D professionals around a minimum viable kind of approach, often there's a mis- misunderstanding that minimum viable product means shorter courses or, or, or you know, doing less um, yeah. versus, I guess, how would you describe to someone what the difference is between an MVP versus, you know, having your full-blown um learning program or course or wh- whatever the kind of full-blown version looks like? What's the difference there? Um, I'm going to give you a great story, and I'm sure that um, my former co- some of my former colleagues will, if they ever hear this, will chuckle. Um, I was brought in to uh, Savannah College of Art and Design, big um, art school here in Savannah, international program. And this is years ago. It's like 2005. They wanted to build an e-college, right? And this was really my first hit the ground running design thinking, minimal viable product, you know, product practice that I had no idea, had, did not have words for at the time, right? That, did, that wasn't in our conception. Yeah. What we knew is that we were about two weeks ahead of the students in a number of courses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we were developing full-blown courses, right, um, on that first level model. Um, and getting them out the door in about two weeks ahead of a lot of the students who are going to be taking the course. So it didn't mean that the courses were incomplete. It didn't mean that the courses were not well, exceptionally well designed and um, well-defined and beautiful and elegant in their conception. 
but what we were doing is getting them out the door to then get the is this is this giving us the results that we're looking for right um but i i think you're right i mean i think that mvp is like can be another word for shoddy and i i don't i don't send anything out shoddy you know so once you've got that out you've obviously collecting feedback and at this point how do you go about evaluating whether the mvp is is actually moving you in the right direction yeah i think that uh, i think that questions from like questions that you get are probably your best barometer for your success right so I'm thinking about um, this live training that uh, I worked on a couple of years ago, which was going out to like hundreds of thousands of people to up to a million. I think it ended up reaching about a million people. And the first uh, thing that we did was listen to the questions and then reincorporated the questions into the training before we did the next two sessions. Right. So are you getting the questions? Still getting the questions? Right. These are questions about like this is still unanswered for me. So you think that bit of knowledge is missing? Right, okay, yeah. Yeah, fill the gap with the questions. Like if somebody's willing to ask the question, you know, where do I go to find this? Or if, you know, then clearly I have not given them sufficient information right. or I have not said it the third time or I've not shown it somewhere. Um, so yeah, the, I, I, I love questions. That's not, that's usually where we end up, you know, getting the quickest results to go back to the next thing. If we don't get the questions, then we start asking questions. And what's your typical process for evaluating whether it's, you know, you mentioned kind of solving the business problem. How do you gather Mm -hmm. data to understand whether you are solving the business problem or not? And that's a much longer course usually, right? So MVP doesn't work there. We do need to look at things and see if the business, you know, the needle moves in the business. And it might be, you know, right now I'm working on um, a program where we're really trying to change onboarding from being nine months to 90 days. Right. Um, So like the time, you know, time to project is much quicker. So people are not stuck in sort of a, a loop of learning instead of, you know, going on and doing lots of on the job training. Um, to get up to speed. So that's, you know, that's something that doesn't happen in a week. Um, So I think that a lot of those same listening tools, like the engagement surveys, like the pulse surveys, like the NPS scores, those pieces end up showing us broadly organizationally, like if we're moving the needle with the employee experience, right? But project by project, I think the outcomes are largely you know, more measured in, you know, less training time or quicker to the job or, um, you know, if you're working in an industrial space, lower incidence of, you know, of uh, any sort of um, adverse effect event happening. Um, So, you know, the measures are different and they certainly take place over the time. You know, I just... Have you, have you had a, you should, you, Nelson, you should talk to Kevin Yates. Have you talked oh, to him we've yet? We've had Kevin on the show. We have. You have. Okay. Have I've got to go and take a look at that. On our show. Yeah. 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 So I, I just finished his L&D detective kit and how eloquent it is in creating a design process 
for data, right? Yeah. And, and data discovery. Um, but I think that, you know, I think LND, this is, this is, I'm going to, I'm probably going to get like bad tweets or something. I think LND talks, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about our data problems, right? Like you hear this, yeah. um, you've done, you know, you did, you did hear this all the time, the LND data problems, right? But I start to wonder a lot if it's not like a learning and development professional business acumen problem, right? Yeah. Like I had my own problems there. I went and got an MBA. Like you can find the information, right? Yeah. Yeah. For, for, I think Kevin does a great job there yeah. too. Absolutely. I mean, for our listeners, definitely go check out the episode with with Kevin. Uh, it's all about data. And, and I think it's a valid point, Sarah. I think often what we miss is the skill to be data proficient, or at least comfortable with the idea of it is, you know, we often compare it with the idea of if you look at when I started my career in, in marketing, marketing was very much uh, about the four P's and it was about being a creative and, you know, the element of data was still kind of outsourced to, to a different team. Um, but today mm-hmm. data is, is such an intrinsic part of the marketing role and, and being able to leverage that data. And we're seeing the same shift in, in L and D where you need to be comfortable with data and um, not to say you need to be the absolute whiz in data and you can absolutely bring in people who are dedicated in that skill but you need to be comfortable enough to understand what the data is telling you or to at least ask the right questions Uh, and and often i think that's the underrated skill is you know asking the right questions from the data the data can pretty much tell you whatever you want it to tell you if you're asking the wrong questions you're going to walk away with the wrong um conclusions from it and before we kind of if you're not designing sorry if you're not designing for that data like if you're not designing the program to track and create those data streams to measure the pieces that you're really looking for so if i'm looking for you know taking nine months to 90 days clearly i'm looking for time metrics and time you know time on site time in program time to completion um and then other other pieces that relate to productivity, you know, measures and learning competency measures and value of learning to job, uh, you know, time on job, like those measures are significant, right? Yeah. But they're all built within the design. Uh, and I, that's, I think, spot on, Sarah. It, it's built into the design, mm-hmm. right? It isn't an afterthought. And I think this is often where what we see is you get what you measure, right? If, say, for example, you're trying to cut down your onboarding from uh, you know six months to three months, if you're not measuring whether that time is changing, then you're not going to get it in your data, right? right. If, if all you're looking at is whether someone opened and completed the course that you designed, then when you report back, that's all you're going to have. And, and often, I think when people are talking about data problems, it goes beyond just making sense out of data. The problem is, it, you didn't even have the instruments in place to measure that data in your design. And so the problem is probably a lot earlier on in the process um, rather than afterwards going, I don't have the data. And before we go into the rapid fire um, section, Sarah, I, someone listening to this, they're excited by the idea of applying design thinking. Sarah has sold it to me. Um, I, I, wanna, I want some of this design thinking stuff. Where do I start? 
if I wanted to do something this week, this month, to start me on that journey of, of kind of applying design thinking to L&D, where should I start? Yeah, and I, I think, you know, I spoke to the Luma Institute. I think that's a great starting place for learning um, and development professionals. I think it comes out of that human factors space, like really looking at how to solve um, business problems through the people that are part of it. Um, and I think they've got some really great tools uh, for that. You know, learning, uh, you know, uh, there are some great um, books out there on um, design thinking, but a lot of them align to um, the software development space. It's not that you can't, um, you know, reapply them. Um, there is a new ADT book um, out on design thinking for instructional designers um, that I have on my things to read list. Um, it's literally sitting on my nightstand right now. Um, but I, I mean, I think that we're going, we are going to see this more and more over the next five years. We're not necessarily an industry that's quick to pick up um, methodologies. <laughs> um, but uh, I think we're going to see more and more, you know, reading and research in that. I know that, um, you know, Josh Burson has a great program in his academy on design thinking for instructional design. Um, so there are resources out there. I think there's actually a Harvard or a Cornell program on design thinking for innovation. Right. Um, so there, there's, there's stuff out there. It's not going to necessarily be related to learning. Um, and a bit biased here, but I've got my book coming out, which does cover design thinking, agile. And yes. If you're interested in it, I basically adapted it for L&D, checking out Learning at Speed out on the 3rd of June, and you can pre-order it now. Thought I'd use that opportunity, Sarah, since we're talking about um, a similar topic. But are you ready for the quick fire round? I'm so ready. I'm so prepared for this. Let's do it. Let's do this. How do you learn, Sarah? Um, continuously. As, as a kid. Around how, how you typically approach it. As a kid, I had a near photographic memory. And then I spent a lot of time um, in art school. And I think that my vision has blurred as I've gotten older, too. So being having a photographic memory is great for bar trivia, but it's also great <laughs> to be able to just read and absorb a lot of information. Wow. And um, what do you love most about your job? People um, and making an impact on people's lives and their job and their, you know, goals and professional development. I mean, that's what gets me to show up every day. And um, how do you like to start your day? I spend about 30, 30 to 90 minutes reading every morning. Oh, wow. And um, if you could change one thing about L&D, what would it be? That was the easiest of these questions. More 2D design practice. So I come out of an art school background and taught as an art professor for a dozen years. 2D design practice. If I ever write my book, Nelson, it'll be 2D design for instructional designers. I think that we skip that, skip over that um, in L&D. And I think that that is the practice of design is essential. I look forward to reading it, Sarah, when, 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 it, when it's ready. Um, what's the one bit of advice you give out the most? I have only one story. Um, the book you've recommended the most? Visual Grammar by Christian Laborg. 
right? Why do you recommend that book the most? It goes back into that 2D design space. I mean, I think that he does a very elegant job of visualizing all of the elements and principles of design. Uh, and I think that anybody who works in the design space, I mean, we're constantly making these choices. So sometimes they're really tiny little choices, like where this, what size font something should be, or where, what size something should be on a or on a slide, or how much weight or color it should have on a slide. And I think um, Christian Leborg um, is a genius and really dissecting that in terms of the choices that we're making that we might not even be conscious of. I'm going to add that to my wish list there. Um, Great. What do you know now that you wish you knew at the start of your career? That this is where I was supposed to be. Wow. That I, I spent a lot, I spent a lot of moments, you know, questioning why I was doing different things and why it felt so hard. And part of that resilience is getting to where you're supposed to be. What's your best productivity hack? Insomnia. Insomnia. And smart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For many years, I thought that was my best productivity hack, but really it's smart sheets. Um, I, I can, I live and die by the smart sheets. I manage my whole team across smart sheets. I can't, I can't function without uh, uh, the ability to look at a Gantt chart. <laughs> um, what's the one thing you've changed your mind about recently? Perfectionism. Ooh, what what what's your thinking around it now? Um, I'm I'm chasing progress, not perfection, this year. And the last one for you, Sarah, today is: What are you most proud of? My family. That's an easy one. Sarah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you, Nelson. I appreciate the time. As someone who loves learning, I have to say, I found diving into design thinking for LND super interesting. I've definitely added a few of those recommendations to my wish list. If you liked today's episode, please do subscribe so you never miss a future episode. And as always, you can find details for myself and Sarah in the description. See you next time.